Hey, brother, there's an endless road to rediscover. Hey, sister, know the water's sweet, but blood is thicker. Oh, the sky. Welcome to the Reformed Brotherhood. Brothers don't shake hands. Brothers gotta hug. I'm Tony. And I'm Jesse. Brother? I'm going to have a brother? I've always dreamed about having a brother. If you'd like to join our brotherhood, you can join our Facebook group. You can email us at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at reformbrohood. You can also subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, brother-in-law. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Tony, happy Easter. Happy Easter. I mean, if you're into that kind of thing. If you're into Jesus rising from the dead, this is your right. day. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. We had a conversation earlier that um, some people are so like opposed to celebrating Easter that they forgot to celebrate Resurrection Day, which is like every Sunday. <laughs> so there's a lot of people online that are like, like actively saying we shouldn't be celebrating the resurrection today, but it's Sunday. So we have to. It's It's just a funny funny quirk of uh cognitive dissonance that some people aren't picking up on it's one of those things where in the church calendar and our actual calendar they always are going to fall on the lord's day yeah yeah and it's funny um i was we were uh traveling a little bit yesterday we went and um we did a little sightseeing with my mom who is visiting and we passed a church that i know is a very liberal church in woodstock vermont and I, I made some sort of, I, I'm sort of like um, mused a little bit. And I said, I wonder why liberal churches that deny the resurrection even bother to celebrate Easter. And then I had this, I didn't say it, but I had this kind of weird moment of clarity. That's like, this is one of those weird things where like the extreme Scottish Presbyterian covenanters and the liberals sort of like share that like Easter is emptied of its meaning. And it's just kind of like either you don't do anything with it or you like, have this empty hollow symbol like they they both kind of diverge but they both end up denying the celebration of the resurrection on this day in a weird way that is a wonderfully sad way to start this podcast yeah it is but it's easter and the resurrection happened and we are free not only free to celebrate it but we are obligated to celebrate it on the lord's day so it was glorious this morning to just proclaim with my brothers and sisters that christ is risen indeed I'm down with that. I love that yes. alleged quote from Luther that said there's a little bit of Easter in every Lord's Day. So yes. there's some truth in that. So we get to celebrate it all the time. So I'm hoping all the energy of this morning kind of carry through the rest of the year. It's nice yes. to have a reminder. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the things that I noticed, if I can talk about this real quick with you, uh, about your travels yesterday, is that you went to a farm, right? I did. We went to Billings Farm, which is this local farm uh, near us in Woodstock, Vermont. So there's this picture that I was sent via text of you basically scratching slash massaging kind of the, the under chin and neck of a cow. And the cow yes. seemed to really enjoy this. Was that actually happening? Yes, the cow absolutely loved it. So um, we were in this big long... You've been to Billings Farm, right? Yeah. Okay, well, nobody else who's listening to us has probably except this is like great, our parents. Great podcasting for everybody. But else. there's this long; it's like an active working dairy farm, and so there's this long, uh, long line of cows, and most of them were sleeping for some reason. I don't know if it was like a busy. I mean, it was a busy day. I don't know. They were all sleeping, 
But down at the end, one of the one of the farmhands, I don't know, staff, whatever you call them, was was doing this thing where he was scratching the underside of the cow's neck, and the, the cow had his like chin way up in the air, and I was like, man, that cow looks like it's really loving it. And I walked over there and I went to pet the cow, and the cow stuck his head up in the air, like like, all right, well, this is what we do. So I just went with it. Oh, that's awesome. I wish everybody could see this picture because it's as if the cow is just neck upstretched in pure delight. It was. Like, it's yeah. like you're scratching a dog, you know, like a dog kind of leans back and really soaks it all in. I yeah. mean, I've never seen this happen with a cow. Yeah. I mean, it was funny because there was a lot of a lot of similar behavior between the cows and our dog in terms of like how they respond. Like some of them just like didn't want to have anything to do with you and were like cranky the way that a puppy gets when it's tired. And some of them were like, you'd walk by and it would like, they would like push up against the fence trying to get your attention. It's just funny to think that cows have this like personality kind of thing. You don't think of them that way. You just think of them as like big dumb animals, but cows are actually really smart. Evidently. And they love a good scratching. So they do. Who doesn't love a good scratching? Who doesn't? This is really taking a direction. I did not foresee when I started this conversation. (laughs) It's all good. Speaking of which, if you enjoy our cow-related information or the theology that we also talk about, this is something that we would love for you to do for us. Go out to iTunes and rate and review this particular podcast. That's the best way for people to find us and the best way to say you care and you'll scratch a cow when you see one in need. Yes. A five-star rating is like a big scratch under my cow-like chin. That. I could not say any better, <laughs> and I'm not even going to try to go beyond Perfect. that. Beautiful. <laughs> so speaking of um, really well-said things, which is no doubt setting the proper trend for this week's podcast, Tony, what are we talking about today? So this is it. We This are, is it. This is it. We are finally broaching uh, the subject of baptism. Baptism. Now, baptism uh, is one of those things um, that unfortunately has the potential to be very divisive. So um, Reformed Baptists, or you might call them particular Baptists, um, and uh, Reformed Presbyterians or like Reformed Church America, uh, the Continental Reformed Tradition, this is one of those things that is like the major dividing line between them. So this can get, this can be a discussion that can have some heat. It can have some hurt feelings. Um, it's not a, uh, an exaggeration to say that this has literally split churches in terms of who worships with who throughout history. So this is a serious topic. Um, and, uh, I'll be honest, I approach it with a little bit of trepidation. And the reason is because I'm currently a member and active in a Baptist church, even though I personally hold to paid Baptist convictions, paid Baptist just means baptizing infants. What? I know it's crazy. I'm so, shocked. um, there's all sorts of reasons. We're not going to get into why exactly I'm at the church I'm at, but, um, it's really important, no matter what church you're at, you're going to find that you have theological disagreements with um, the church as a whole, like formal theological disagreements. It's really rare for you to be at a church where you agree 100% with every single thing on the doctrinal statement. Um, sometimes it's little disagreements. Sometimes it can be significant. Sometimes you might think it's a little disagreement, but the church thinks it's significant or vice versa. So I want to be really like transparent on this podcast that even though I hold a different conviction, I don't want in any way to um, undercut the theology of my church. Um, I'm not going to try to argue against that position. Our goal today is really just to be descriptive of the two major positions that Reformed Christians hold and then talk a little bit about how that 
kind of plays out in our life. So I'm a I'm I'm a Presbyterian by conviction, even though I'm part of a Baptist church, and there's lots of reasons. Jesse is a Baptist by conviction, um, and you're at a CME church, right? CME, yep. Which is mostly a Baptist convention, like a Baptist denomination for the most part, right? That is correct. I don't know much about the the denomination, but it's mostly a Baptist um, a credo or adult Baptist denomination. So that's kind of where we're going tonight. Is we're going to talk about the different pers- different positions, um, what they are, um, and then we'll talk a little bit about kind of our personal convictions and how maybe how we came to those convictions. Um, and then we're just going to have some discussion with some clarifying questions and things like that. And then we want to end uh, talking about kind of the importance of baptism and where we have common ground and where it is that we can have unity in this disagreement. Because far too often what happens in this disagreement is there's disagreement that leads to division. And we really want this to be a, a disagreement that leads to unity um, in recognizing that even though we disagree, we're still brothers. Right. So we should be done in about five hours. Yeah, yeah. So just uh, go ahead and toss it on like 60 speed and um, 60 just pray speed. pray for us uh, <laughs> retroactively. Is, is that a thing? Plenty of time. This is yes. a good chance, I think, for you and I to, because we haven't really, you and I had this discussion much or kind of delved into the details. True. And like you said, it this often becomes a lot more heat than light. And, uh, you know, I'm increasingly convicted that with stuff like this, this is where the rubber meets the road, where we demonstrate to each other and also to outsiders that division on nuanced points where we show our love and solidarity with one another is an example of true worship that is within the family of Christ. So I think so much of worship, of course, in the New Testament is about edifying and evangelism. And I think we're going to get a little of that tonight, even though we'll have different perspectives on this that at the end we're going to be, I was going to say holding each other, but that all sounds weird and also is not exactly <laughs> what's going to happen. Yes. But this, the sentiment is true. Yes. So I, I want to, I'll start out and then um, uh, we'll switch it over to Jesse when we go to talk about the credo uh, Baptist position. So um, one thing I think, I hope both of us will affirm is that the scriptures don't, um, the scriptures don't give a rock solid single bullet point proof text for either position. So both positions, I think, have to extrapolate a little bit from what the scriptures are saying. Um, there's no verse that says thou shalt not baptize infants. And there's also no verse that says thou shalt baptize infants. So, um, you know, the best back and forth I ever heard on this in terms of uh, being charitable was a debate between R.C. Sproul and, and it's not really a debate, but a presentation by R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur. And they started out that way and they're kind of giants of reformed faith. So uh, I think we probably can start there too. But I want to read from question 165 of the Westminster Longer Catechism or Larger Catechism. And it says, what is baptism? And the answer is, baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament, wherein Christ hath ordained the washing of water in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost to be a sign and seal of ingrafting into himself, of remissions of sins by his blood, of regeneration by his spirit, of adoption and resurrection unto everlasting life, and whereby the parties baptized are solemnly admitted into the visible church and enter into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. So um, that just frames it really well, is that the, the Westminster Longer Catechism has a really clear, although technical, uh, explanation for what baptism actually is. So um, 
to understand kind of some, how some of that language works out, though, you have to go back all the way to the Old Testament. So this actually gets into a broader discussion that we'll have to have another time about covenant theology versus other kinds of hermeneutics and, and redemptive historical hermeneutics. And um, in uh, Reformed, kind of using that in the technical cap- capital R sense, Reformed theology um, relies on on three major covenants. There's the covenant of redemption, which is an agreement made between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternity past, um, which basically it was an agreement that uh, the Father would elect a people, the Son would redeem the people, and the Spirit would apply that redemption to those people. That covenant of redemption then um, kind of plays itself out in history in two different ways. The first is in what's called the covenant of works. You might call it the covenant of creation. And that is a sort of a a covenant that was made between God and Adam and then by extension Eve, but primarily with Adam in which he was, um, he was created with the ability to um, perfectly serve and obey God. And God condescended and made this covenant such that if Adam obeyed the commandments he had been given, then God would reward him with eternal life. It's not quite accurate to say that he merits eternal life in a strict sense, but the terms of this covenant were such that if he followed the terms of the covenant of works, um, he would obtain eternal life. So that's the covenant of works. Well, Adam failed that almost immediately. And so God made a second covenant with Adam, um, typologically with Adam, called the covenant of grace. And so the covenant of grace is any covenant that happens between between Adam and um, Christ. All of those different covenants we see are, are administrations or kind of like sub-covenants of the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace essentially says that God will save his people and that he will accomplish what needs to be accomplished in order for the, the rewards of the covenant of works to be applied to people who didn't earn it. So then Christ comes, he fulfills the terms of the covenant of works by living an obedient life. He then dies to suffer the curses of the covenant of works on our behalf. And then all of the rewards that he's earned is imputed to us as people who are um, under his federal headship or who are under his authority or jurisdiction as the covenant head. Now, the reason that that's important is because uh, baptism for the Reformed Presbyterian position is seen as the covenant sign or the covenant symbol of that covenant of grace. So, um, at least for New Covenant, New Testament Christians. Um, However, in the Old Testament, what we see is Abraham is given a covenant sign which is specific to his administration of the covenant of grace. And we see that as uh, circumcision. So, um, I should have pulled up the text, but... Basically, Abraham is told that this promise he's being given is for him and it's for his offspring and it's for the Gentiles. Um, And all of that happens through Abraham. Um, It's through a relationship with Abraham, right? Abraham is told um, those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. And that applies to all nations. So what we see, though, and this is really important, is that Abraham gives his, and I'm not going to, I'm going to use Isaac, but I, I don't know if it's a great example, but or Ishmael, is Abraham gives this sign, this covenant sign, as a promise of, of a, a symbol that represents and makes uh, genuine. It's like the handshake on, a, on an agreement or signing your name to the contract. That's what a covenant sign is, is it, it makes the contract or the covenant uh, in effect. It's what initiates it. So when you go to the bank to get a mortgage, you have all this paperwork in front of you. They print out stacks and stack of paperwork, but that paperwork doesn't do anything until it's got all the signatures in the right place. And I've never bought a home, but I've heard horror stories from people who live in their home for two, three months. And then all of a sudden they get a call from the bank that one of the signature lines on page 300 wasn't 
wasn't signed correctly. And so the home isn't actually theirs because the mortgage isn't actually official. So they have to go through all the rigmarole to go back and finalize that. So that's what circumcision was in uh, the Old Testament uh, under Abraham. But what's interesting is he gives that sign both to Isaac, who is the child of promise, and to Ishmael. Now, I, I actually think Ishmael was probably saved. He probably was a believer, but we can get into that some other time. But you can look too, and you see that both Jacob and Esau are given the covenant sign. So what we're seeing is that not only are the believers, so Abraham is the believer as an adult before he received the covenant sign, he came to faith in Yahweh and he trusted and was saved and justified. So then he receives the covenant sign as an adult believer, but then he's also commanded to give that covenant sign to his offspring, to his children, and also to anyone who lives in his house, even the slaves that he's purchased with money. So it's not just a family thing. Sometimes this gets um, kind of like degraded to, well, you're, you know, the Old Testament has a biological principle and the New Testament has a spiritual principle, but that doesn't really work though. Is it's, it's a, it's a headship principle. So in the Old Testament, Abraham and anyone under his headship, which includes his, um, his children, his purchased slaves, anyone who lives in his household, they're given the covenant sign. Now we kind of fast forward through the rest of Old Testament history and we come to Acts 2. Peter gets up, he gives his famous first sermon, um, and he says this promise, he says, um, if you uh, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, you'll be forgiven, the Holy Spirit will indwell you, all these things. And he says this promise was given for you, for your children, and for all those who are far off. And so what he's doing is he's taking that same language that was given to Abraham, right? We have Abraham, Isaac, and all of the Gentiles who will be blessed through their fellowship with Abraham. He's applying that same kind of pattern and, and logic to the new covenant symbol of baptism, saying this promise is for you, your children, and all those who are far off. So the symbol of that promise, which is baptism, is granted not only to um, not only to the believer, but also to their children. And then that same promise, which is for the believer and their children, is also for the people in the wider world, the Gentiles specifically is what he's talking about there. So that's kind of the skeletal um, framework for why it is that Presbyterians baptize their children. Now, the question usually comes up like, well, what does baptism do? Because we deny baptismal regeneration. What we'd say, and we actually covered this on an earlier episode, so I'll, I'll look up the show notes, but we answered a question by John Chantry that kind of got at this. But um, what we would say is that baptism is what unites you to Christ. So that, that act, that symbol, just like my signature, creates a contract and a relationship with the bank. Right. When I put the ring on my wife's finger on our wedding day and said, you know, with this ring, I thee wed, which I don't think we actually said that. But whatever we said in its place, um, that actually creates a new reality. That symbol constitutes the completion or the enacting of a covenant in the same way. Baptism, um, that symbol or that sign symbols, not right. The right word, the sign actually brings about the efficacy of that contract. It brings that contract into effect. However, in Reformed uh, theology, we would say that that effect that the baptism brings in, that effect is not always tied to the moment of administration. So sometimes we'll administer the symbol, we'll administer the sign and to a person who's elect. And that contract will not be brought into effect until later. But we would still say that the sign of baptism is what brings that contract into effect. Now, the other question, and I'm, I'm probably preempting a, a couple of the questions you're going to have, but the other question is, well, what about people who never become Christians but receive baptism? Is, is, it some, you know, is it a wasted symbol? 
the point is that uh, a person receives that symbol and they that promise is not anyone who receives this symbol will be given salvation. The promise is all who are chosen by God will receive salvation and will become united to Christ by this symbol. The, the union with Christ, the federal contractual covenantal union with Christ comes about by this symbol for all of the elect. However, not everyone who receives the symbol is elect. So that promise isn't for them, even though the symbol is applied to them. Um, I'm not going to get into it, but R. Scott Clark talks about the administration of the covenant and the substance of the covenant. And roughly speaking, the administration is kind of the outward symbols, the outward trappings of the covenant. So baptism, participation in the church, um, prayer even, all of those things that are um, believers and non-believers both can outwardly do. Those are the administration of the covenant. The substance of the covenant is Christ. So not everyone who participates in the administration of the covenant also partakes of the substance. Um, so that's a kind of a heady distinction. Um, and he he had a um, he had a series called "I Will Be God to You and Your Children" that kind of went through all of this in detail. Um, that I'll I'll link to kind of the first episode of that. And I would encourage anyone who wants to learn more to to listen to that because he's obviously an expert and I'm not. Um, but that's kind of the skeletal framework of that position and why it is that Presbyterians um, baptize babies. Sometimes, you know, Catholics, we understand they baptize babies because it removes original sin. That right. makes sense. That's that's logical, even if it's incorrect. Um, Lutherans, a little bit less logical, but they believe that salvation and grace and faith is actually imparted to a person receiving baptism, including infants. So again, that makes sense why we would baptize infants, because if it's actually giving them something and putting something into their life, then why wouldn't we? The Presbyterian model is a little bit less intuitive um, because it relies on a much more extensive biblical hermeneutic. It's not as one-to-one. There's no single proof text. It really relies on kind of pulling out the covenant themes from all of Scripture and then understanding how, how covenant symbols work throughout all of Scripture and then recognizing that baptism is another covenant symbol in a line of different covenant symbols. Right. Does that all make sense? It does. That's a really, I think, thorough and fair treatment that provides a really great skeletal framework, like you said. And I think it's important to uh, allow the time to kind of get all that out so people can hear that in all its entirety uninterrupted. Because oftentimes, if you just kind of tune into a debate, debate, it's kind of back and forth so much that you don't get somebody to kind of string you all the way through the argument so that you can hear all the finance nuance pieces that are cumulative that build on each other and then try to understand where we're coming from. I love talking about this with my Presbyterian friends because we just have really good discussions about it and it doesn't become hot and heated. We both know that we're trying to understand our faith more proactively. And I think interacting with each other on these two different kind of wavelengths, so to speak, is really helpful in yeah. working out what this actually means. Because we should say, I don't know if we said at the outset, that this subject is not salvific, but because it does involve... Uh, something that is important in the church. We can't just ignore it, but neither of us has like a corner, so to speak, on the market for all the knowledge on either of these topics or the topic generally speaking. Yeah, absolutely. So Jesse, why don't you kind of run through the the credo-baptist or adult-baptist position for us? uh, I thought you'd never asked. As you would like to. (laughs) Also, did you feel like all this weight to like have to articulate that representing the reform, all reform Presbyterians throughout all the ages and in this current age. I mean, I guess maybe I had wished that I had like jotted down some notes and didn't try to do it from memory. <laughs> it's impressive that you did that all from memory. That is actually the impressive part of that. Yeah, I, I should have taken some notes down first. Um, yeah. But 
It that was nice. a really good treatment, though. I, I think that was like spot on, right on. Well, so well, thank I'm you. glad that you were willing to go first because one, that tells me how smart I need to sound to keep up with you. And two, <laughs> what a lot of what you said, I can provide kind of the counter perspective, including I want to say something briefly about the verse that you quoted, which I think is like Acts 239, right? Um, yeah, it's 238, 39, I think is kind of that. It's right around there. So the view in terms of a credo baptism or believer's baptism or adult baptism is that I would say contrary to the pedo baptist view, the New Testament counterpart to Old Testament circumcision isn't baptism, but it's regeneration or the new birth. So it's spiritual circumcision of the heart, not water baptism, that I would say corresponds in the new covenant to the old covenant physical circumcision of the flesh. So in this general view and in my conviction, I would say it kind of falls in four separate areas of convictions real quick. The first is that the kind of the classic representation of credo baptism is that narrative examples in the New Testament portray baptism as being administered only to believers. So some of the verses quickly to mention that point, um, like Tony said, would be mostly found in the book of Acts. So Acts 2.41, so those who received Peter's word were baptized and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. Or Acts 8.12, when, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. So most of those who subscribe to this view are going to say, when you look at baptism in the Bible as it's prescribed, you're always going to see it closely associated with these verbs received, believed. So there's this sensibility that there it has to be cognizance on the part of the person who is being baptized. So that would, at least in that view, automatically exclude infants from that. The second would be that baptism is portrayed in the New Testament as a symbol of the beginning of spiritual life and as well an appeal to God for good conscience. So when Peter says uh, in his book, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in Galatians as well, for as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So there's this idea that, again, there's a sense that there's a conscious appeal to God for good conscience, which is part of the act of being baptized, as at least the apostles describe it. And so that means, again, that there has to be some sense that those eligible for baptism are those who can make a profound and uh, you know, full confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're the ones that should be eligible for, it. and it's particularly nuanced for that audience, if that makes sense. So I'm glad to tell you that you brought up the example of household baptism, because that often comes up a lot in the conversation of this idea of, well, we, we have the apostles speak saying something about households. In Acts, there is reference to lots of households being baptized. And so again, when you look at those passages, at least my conviction as well, is that the broader context makes clear that only believers were baptized even in those circumstances. So probably the most famous passage that people often go to is one in Acts 16. So this reads, And after Lydia was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So th there's this theme, at least through the Creed about this perspective, that when we're talking about household here again, 
we're referring to those, at least it seems implicit in the text, who were old enough to hear and understand the word of the Lord spoken to them, which would include very young children. And they were old enough to, again, understand what it meant for a person to believe in God and then have good reason to actually rejoice in it. So again, there is an inference there, but it seems strong that even when we're talking about households, we're, there's this language of, you know, if I go to a place and say, everybody was there when somebody asked me, well, who was there? I said, everybody was there. What I mean is that there was enough people from our friend group, perhaps, that represented a whole of a lot of the people we know, but certainly not that everybody that we knew was there. So there's this thread, again, about having this cognizance moving forward in faith, having a reasonable way to understand, to appreciate what's being said, to internalize it, metabolize it, express repentance, and then move forward in faith. And that's really kind of the last thing that I want to I say about the Creative Baptist perspective that's probably unique to it. And that is that baptism happens through faith. So in Colossians, when we find these words, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So if baptism were merely a parallel to the Old Testament rite of circumcision, it would not have to happen through faith. And since, of course, infants did not take on circumcision, they didn't do that through faith. So at least, again, the creative perspective is the reason the New Testament ordinance of baptism must be through faith is that it represents not the Old Testament, Old Testament external ritual, but an internal ritual, which would be a spiritual experience that would be, as said in this passage, circumcision without hands. So the last thing I want to say, because this, I think, is a really good example of how God-fearing people are interpreting with conviction passages in totally different ways. I think Acts 2.39 is like a really good quintessential example because you had mentioned, again, speaking about household, the promise for you and your children. You don't happen to have that verse up, do you, in front of you, Tony? I can pull it up one second. Yeah, because I, I don't have it up. When you have it up, I'd love to have it just read so we can kind of hear it um, in its entirety. Because the, the, the ju- just the, man, I can't even speak. The... Uh, this is baptism without a net, everybody. No editing, straight up unscripted. Exactly. I've got it. So let me, I'm going to start in uh, 36 here. Yeah, please do. Let's go here. And this is from the ESV. It says, uh, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, speaking of the crowds, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone who the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Awesome. So this is really what's uh, at the heart of, again, this different interpretation, because the believer Baptist perspective translates it by saying, well, this passage places two very clear conditions on all the recipients of the promise. One from man's perspective and one from God's perspective. So from man's perspective, the promise is to those who repent. And from God's perspective, the promise is to those whom God calls. So this is where, how does this you and your children then fit into this? So the pedo response to this is that it doesn't explain why Peter would have chosen that wording, you and your children. Because no, first, like if you were to look at this passage, and you know this better, you certainly know this better than I, Tony. But the word for children here, as I understand it, actually means just progeny. 
So you have to keep in mind that just a few weeks earlier, many of these, probably these same people, these Jews in the crowd, had accepted responsibility for Christ's blood to be, quote, upon us and our children. So they would have naturally been concerned as to whether or not they and their children could be forgiven in this particular context. So again, the credo-baptist perspective is going to interpret this and say, he's not saying, per se, go out and just, you know, baptize all of your children right this very minute. But he's expressing this kind of larger, deeper truth that this forgiveness is for you and all your generations, even though you made essentially that same promise. You took that same responsibility on yourself and on your children. But it is for those who believe and repent. And that must be the precursor to baptism. So that's kind of the, is that a fair summary, Tony, of the Credo Baptist perspective? Anything you want to add to that? No, I just want to add that you used way more scripture than I did. So, uh, yeah, so you must win. No, so I think you're absolutely right that this this um, this really does, um, this this debate or this discussion in particular demonstrates how much hermeneutics and how much pre, uh, presuppositions about what yes. the text is saying and, you know, and that's not to say like Jesse has presuppositions that aren't justified or Tony has presuppositions that aren't justified. But when you come to the text, it's not as though you're looking at a single text and you're looking at that single text in sort of a vacuum, either from the rest of the text or from the tradition that you come from. Uh, because I look at this and I say, well, obviously this is this is paedobaptism. And you look at this and you say, well, obviously this is credobaptism. Right, right. And, uh, you know, it's funny because I can feel myself like as you're going, like I can feel myself getting ready with all my retorts for every point you said. And we're not going to do that. Right. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit about it. And maybe it'll be good to go through um, this text maybe and talk about kind of how we understand it. And maybe we'll go back to that Peter text because I think that's really important too. Uh, but I think that that underscores how important it is to recognize because so many people – think, well, if you could, if you just listen to me a little clearer, if you just listen to me, then you'll understand what I'm saying. If you just read the Bible, just read this passage and it's going to be fine, right? A lot of Presbyterians just stand there and repeat for you and your children, for you and your children. And a lot of, uh, a lot of Baptists, you know, stand there and go, everyone who received his word, everyone who received his word. And right? right. Those are in, you know, like four verses of each other. So it's not as simple as just saying, well, just look at the text. There's a hermeneutic. There's a principle. There's a, a understanding of redemptive history. All of that plays into it. There's an understanding of eschatology that plays into it that we probably aren't going to get into in today and that all of that plays into it. So we'll, we'll probably come back to this topic, I think, when we do our systematic theology, when we get to ecclesiology, because this also has implications for who's a part of the church and who's not. Right. Right. It, it certainly does. And here's here's one thing I want to throw out there, because I think this would be a good discussion with you led right into it so well. And this is one of the hangups I have or I don't want to say hangups, probably one of the hurdles that I, I really have trouble crossing or understanding. Let's say it that way when it comes to infant baptism. And I, I want to get your perspective on this. And that is so infant baptism and the regular principle of worship, because I often don't see them coming together kind of harmoniously sure. or co coalescing in a way. So. Sure. I'm sure you've thought about that before, but like, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's a great question, and it's one that comes up a lot. And so the regulative principle, which we've talked a lot about the regulative principle, which is surprising since um, we neither one of us are super, super strict on the regulative principle. But um, it's a really good question. And the answer that most Presbyterians would give, and the one that I think is probably reasonable, is that the command to apply the covenant sign to your children is not something that's abrogated. Right. So one of the kind of um, thought exercises that is used is where's all of the surprise and 
and questions and controversy and confusion in the early church about whether or not we're supposed to continue circumcising our children or continue having them as part of the covenant, right? So the Judaizers, the Judaizer heresy is that a person must still follow the Old Testament, the Old Testament law in order to be saved. There's no record anywhere of anyone ever questioning or asking, well, why don't we apply the covenant symbol to our children anymore? So we go from 2,000 years of Jews um, applying the covenant symbol to their children, and then we sort of expect like a hard stop and nobody has a question about it. So what, what the, the believer's Baptist position has to under, has to believe about that Acts 2 passage, and this is coming back around to the regular principle, I promise, is that the 3,000 people who were added to the church that day, they just intuitively knew they're not supposed to go home and apply this new covenant symbol to their children, even though their entire life they understood that they were sinning if they didn't apply the covenant symbol to every every child they had. So it's this hard stop that we would expect there to be some sort of record of controversy over, just like there was controversy over, well, should we keep circumcising people? And there was all this discussion and the church had to have a formal ruling. There's no parallel to that in terms of the covenant symbol in children. And that, that marks a major change in the practice of Jewish Christians, um, such that we, it's almost unthinkable to me that there wouldn't be some question somewhere. Now, I suppose you could say, well, Maybe there was a maybe there's a controversy. We don't have any record of it, but that's kind of a weird appeal to silence. Right. So the way that that applies to the um, to the regulative principle is that baptism isn't really a new practice. It's not a strictly speaking a uh, a new element. It's an old element that's being carried out in a new way. Um, and so that would be kind of the the way that that connects into the regular principle. And this sometimes comes across as a little bit of a snarky response. And I'm, I don't know if you've heard this one or not, but the same logic that's used to say, well, we shouldn't baptize infants. We also don't have any explicit um, explicit instance in the narrative of Acts or an explicit command in any of the epistles to admit women to the to the Lord's table. Right. So right. so the regulative principle question there is like, well, where do you get off doing this? Where you know, where's that? So I think that kind of demonstrates the difference between the hermeneutics is that in my opinion, the the, the Pado Baptist position looks at it and says, we have these covenant symbols. You know, we had the, um, we had the Baptist or the circumcision in the old Testament. We had the Passover, which sort of becomes baptism and communion. And just like we don't need an explicit warrant to admit women to the table, because we know in the old covenant in the old Testament, they were admitted to the Passover table. We also don't need that warrant in order to admit children to baptism. So that's kind of how it all circles around. And, and it even kind of gets into that X verse is we have these Jewish men who would have been used to applying this covenant symbol. And at no point does Peter say, repent and be baptized. And oh, by the way, I know you would have circumcised your children in the old covenant, but don't do that in the new covenant. There's never any instruction to that effect anywhere. And that's a helpful explanation of that. I mean, I, th I think that um, you can see how, like, a lot of people in the Reformed Presbyterian tradition would talk about the authority for infant baptism comes from, like, good and necessary inference, right? Exactly. And I think that's a fair use of that, that language. So I think you can also see why good and necessary consequence or inference kind of comes or can sound like a normative addition because it's not necessarily commanded in the same way that we're going to apply that for other right. forms of like true regulative worship. And that's one of the things that right. I've always kind of struggled with is it, we, we apply that term so hard at, at other points. And here's one where 
it tends to just have kind of a different emphasis, kind of slips through and not slips through. It's not really fair, but you know what I'm saying? Like right. we, we wouldn't necessarily make like, well, um, like if we, if we use good necessary consequence or inference for lots of other things, we, like we can use that with like cantatas or dramas or right. presumably, like you can see how that argument can be made. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I can understand from a perspective looking on the outs, kind of the outside of this, looking in how some of the way that um, Presbyterians use the scriptures in justifying this seems like a sort of a, a argument of convenience that um, a lot of times you hear people and, and I would include myself in this is um, people who are not ex- not experts in the subject. And they kind of throw this out there like, well, through the whole Old Testament, this is how covenant symbols work. And so it sounds like an argument of convenience. And that's why I would point you to like R. Scott Clark's Clark's series or um, J.V. Fesco has a book called uh, Word, Water and Spirit. That is kind of a fully orbed treatment of of the whole subject. Um, And that's going to be like more information in terms of biblical exposition than you you even want, probably. Um, So but I totally understand how that how that can appear coming from the outside. But my my, um, you know, just to kind of look at my background is I came out of a Lutheran tradition. And so I was predisposed to uh, infant baptism. But when I came to this understanding of baptism in the reform tradition, it kind of clicked. And all of a sudden, like my experiences made sense. So I was baptized as an infant, but nothing in my life was ever different. I didn't have like, I didn't glow. I didn't have like special provisions. I was no more or less inclined to believe or disbelieve or to sin or not sin. So the, the, real kind of like strict efficacy that's present in Lutheran circles, that didn't make any sense to me. But then all of a sudden when um, I became a Christian and I came to faith for myself, actual faith, all of a sudden it was like, okay, this makes sense. Now I can point to my baptism and say, look, I am part of the church. I am, I am a Christian because I was baptized into the name of Christ and now I am his. Um, that all kind of clicked. So that, I mean, I, I never had a period where I, I was a paid about or a credo Baptist. It just never went through that period. Even though a lot of people do, they kind of, they kind of transition through evangelicalism, which is most, mostly credo Baptist, um, through kind of reformed Baptist. And some people, some people end up in reformed Baptist and some people study and they kind of move to a further position. Both of the hosts of the reformed podcast went that direction where they, they were very convinced, uh, credo Baptist. And then they studied and they came to a different conviction. Um, and that's totally fine. People should study the scriptures for themselves. I just never had that experience. That makes sense. And I grew up in a tradition that was definitely reformed Baptist. So one can make the argument that I was predisposed to have this position because it was the way in which it was taught. And, uh, you know, I've done as well, just like you said, trying to understand the scriptures and having these really wonderful, encouraging, uplifting, edifying, sharpening conversations with people who have the opposite view is really good. And these are some of the things that we talked about. I think only good can come out of this as long as we do not make this a war. Uh, and and yeah, that's, exactly. that's the thing I think we're, we're doing well to avoid even in talking about this. I, I like what you said, or it was really interesting in terms of the kind of Pado-Baptist perspective flowing from Peter's words, kind of just like bridging over the historical experience of one thing to the other, that, that one thing being circumcision to the baptism. And, and I think that for me, again, the place where I have a, a hurdle with that is just this making it clear that this is something entirely new and perhaps like still to your point, there would be this reason to really extend this discussion about, well, here's how you practice this really new thing. Here's what regeneration and rebirth really looks like. And here's how, why baptism should only be applied to this specific group and not others as you had in the past. Um, 
and that's where I go back to again, like this, or the, at least the traditional view would hold that, you know, when God instituted circumcision, he was very specific to identified subjects. And that's why the infants were circumcised. And that would be keeping with like regular principle in the Old Testament, if you can say that. Um, but now again, in the New Testament era, you know, are we to assume that the regular principle concerning the subject of the sacraments instituted by Christ, which would be baptism and his Lord's Supper, they are limited and revealed by God's will. The prescribed by Holy Scripture, are, are they to be left to our application from good and necessary inference? And that's where we get, there's all this wonderful discussion that's really kind of outside the scope of this. But I, I was curious for kind of your opinion on that. Um, the other thing I think that would be good for us to talk about is, can we just get into like some weird hypotheticals? Sure. Yes. Let's do this it. This is like the best. Bring it on. This is the best part of this because inevitably someone's going to be like, so what about, so here's my what about. So one of the things that I was be, be curious about I ask this of Presbyterians all the time is, you know, let's say you have two families living side by side with each other. One has baptized their children from a young age. One has not. So we've, you've spoken a lot. I've spoken a lot about covenant uh, believers response through faith, all those things. So I'm kind of wondering first from your perspective for the couple that has the kids that are, so they're straight Presbyterian, like they have a giant P flag, not, (laughs) <laughs> flag, but a flag with a P on it. They've um, got that picture of Boba Fett that the PCOS or PCA is using. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that that's flying like right outside their door. So their children have a more expressed sign, let's say, of the covenant. But I'm always curious, what is like the practical ramifications of that for the child? So there's two families side by side. Let's say sure. they're, they're both trying to raise their families and monitoring the Lord, following after him closely. So what is like the practical difference? What are the outworkings of that, that one child is getting, but the other is not? Sure. So um, I have to tread carefully on this because I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings or, or be insulting. So if if you feel that from me, then um, then I'm failing, but that's not what I'm intending. This was a setup. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, this is, this is really this is really delicate, but I hope people will appreciate that. I'm honestly asking this from one brother to another. I, I, we're, we're sorting this out and I'm just trying to get a sense. Yeah. So, um, so this comes down to, I think the, the different ways that, um, Baptists and Presbyterians understand who constitutes the church. So, um, in Presbyterian, uh, theology, we would say that all baptized persons are part of the visible church and that because they're part of the visible church and that because is important because they're part of the visible church, we have good reason to assume that they are actually members of the invisible church where in, um, in, Baptist theology, that same kind of presumption happens, but it's on the basis of a profession of faith, not on the basis of baptism. So baptism is the response to a a profession of faith, not the basis for our assessment that they're um, that they're a Christian or a part of the visible church, part of the church. And so what I would say, and this isn't to be snarky, is that even just the way you described both families practicing their lives. When I look at that, I say, well, one family is sort of being consistent and one isn't. And the reason I say that is that you describe a family who's treating their children as though they're Christians. Right. Right. You raise them in the admonishment of the Lord. You're probably praying with them. You're teaching them to treat God as their mediator. Right. You're teaching them the Lord's prayer. You're teaching them to approach God as father. You're teaching them to sing Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me. So you're doing all these things. You might even be using a catechism, which causes them to speak as though they're a Christian. And those are all really good things. I don't want to dissuade any Baptist um, from doing that. However, I look at that and I say, well, you're treating your children as though they're Christians, but you're saying that they're not. So the actual experience probably isn't all that different. 
right? So both families teach their kids to pray. Both families tell them God loves them. Both families are doing all this. Both families take their kids to church and encourage them to worship the Lord. All of those things are happening. But the Presbyterian framework includes those children as part of the visible church and assumes that they are indeed a mem- members of the elect and, and will someday be regenerated and will be part of Christ's called. The Baptist position, and maybe you can explain explain where I'm missing something that makes us consistent, but the Baptist position looks at it and said, these children are not Christians. I have no reason to think they're Christians, but I'm going to treat them as though they are. So that's where the disconnect comes for me is I don't exactly understand where that comes from. Why is it that I would treat, why is it that I would tell my children to come to the father and treat their prayers as though they have a mediator. When in reality, I don't, I don't think that at this point they do. Um, so that, that's kind of where I would see the difference in terms of, um, theology where I think it does come into play in terms of practical application, as far as what those children are experiencing, a Presbyterian, uh, family, if they are, um, if they are being consistent with their theology is telling that child from the moment that they're baptized until the moment that they either accept the faith uh, verbally or reject the faith verbally. They're telling that child, you are a part of this church. You are a part of Christ's family. And I expect you to live according to God's law because you are a Christian. The Baptist family is basically telling them the opposite. I hope someday you become a Christian. I hope someday you serve and follow the Lord. So I don't want to make like assumptions about what that actually does to a person's faith because right. there are plenty of plenty of Baptists who um, who make a profession of faith and live healthy spiritual adult lives. There are plenty of Presbyterians who walk away from the faith. So it's not as though one leads to anything else. Uh, but that's what I would see as the actual practical disagreement. Now that that is, like I said, that is not to um, bash on anybody or say anybody doesn't love their children or isn't isn't following um, the scriptures. Everybody is doing what they think the scriptures teach them. Right. So it's not an insult or, or I'm not looking down on anybody. And I'm trying to say this really, really loud and clear because obviously like your family is the most respected Christian family that I know. Like I'm a part of the family, but even from the outside looking in, um, I don't know a family that has a better track record in terms of adult Christians um, than, than your family. So again, it's not a, it's not a cause and effect thing. That's just the way I see it in terms of the theology behind it. Is it, there seems to be a discrepancy between what Baptist parents say their children are and what they treat them like they are. And maybe that's, maybe there's a good reason for it that I haven't encountered, but I don't really run into a good explanation for that most of the time. Right. That makes sense. I think what you said, which one of the things I appreciate about you and speaking with you about this and your perspective is you are logically consistent. I think that the Baptist perspective, and this goes back to everything that we just said, right? Like it's all coming back to a point of we see baptism differently. And so because of that, the outworkings of that and why we apply it at different times or why we say this is appropriate for baptism and this is not, all that's shaped by what we believe baptism to be, whether it's its sign or essentially a a sign of, of confession of faith rather than just a sign of, of being part of the visible church. And there there's part of me that appreciates this perspective of wanting to make sure, and this is where it gets really emotional, is wanting to make sure that our children, which neither of us have children, so that's why we can have this conversation right. in some ways and be like emotionally divorced from that portion right. of it, which is I think is helpful, is, is to have those children be part of the body of Christ in a way that's beyond just mouth service. Right. So I would say that the Baptist perspective on what's the difference between these two families is not necessarily, at least in my view, that we're saying, 
well, I'm saying these Christian, these these children are not Christian, like decidedly unchristian. Uh, unless like I have heard Reformed churches where like their their children's program is called like un- unregenerate, <laughs> which, which yeah. I feel like is awful. So there's an extreme view, I guess, where you could say like everything else, but we of course don't want to judge something by its extreme that these kids are unregenerate and therefore not Christian. But I would say even in my own life with my parents and the way that I view this now and the general perspective would be that God has still charged us, not us because you and I are not parents, but still charged parents to teach the truth. And when they are educating and raising their kids in the truth and expressing this to them, that they are doing exactly what God wants them to do and that they also at the same time recognize that it is possible in God's sovereignty that these children may not be part of the visible church. So I suppose there's some truth in what you're saying, but I would say that the the lack of, I would say this seems, this is fair. I would say maybe from your perspective, this seems as inconsistent to you as to me, re- the regular principle in infant baptism seems as inconsistent. Yeah. So yeah, that's fair. I, I think it's just a matter of, we could kind of work around some of the semantics of how we're expressing the language. Of course, there is this desire a part of all godly parents to want to see their children come into the invisible, the real church, as it were, the promised right. uh, part of the body of Christ. But you're right in saying that Baptist parents, Reformed Baptist parents, are waiting for that confession of faith to make that full representation. But practically speaking, there is in a sense where they want them to be included because they are, they are as parents, part of that visible church. But the line up to which they will walk and go no further is by saying, well, they are Christian in some sense by the baptism itself. So again, I guess it just goes back to this idea that we are approaching us from kind of different angles or turning this jewel of baptism over in our hands and looking at it from different angles. But it seems to me still, practically speaking, we have a lot of common ground because the children are still being raised in a way, presumably, in which they're receiving, even as a means of grace to their parents in some respect, uh, the truth of the gospel message. But I understand that there's a difference in the expression of how they're included in the body of Christ. Does that make sense? What you're saying makes sense. But see, I'm sitting here and, and all I can think is, but they're not a part of the body of Christ. So that that's what I, that's where my struggle is with the Baptist perspective is, is as a Presbyterian thinker, right. um, not, a, not a Presbyterian member, but as a Presbyterian thinker, I'm sitting there, I'm sitting here thinking, well, yeah, it makes sense that we would raise our children in the admonition of the Lord because they're, because they're Christians. And we, we admonish Christians to follow the Lord, right? We command belie- unbelievers to repent. Right. We command them to repent um, and we admonish them to repent, but we don't admonish them to walk in the ways of the Lord unless they've already repented, right? You don't, you don't get after a non-Christian for not following God's laws yeah, until true. they've repented. So I, I, and I want to flip the, the mirror around a little bit on myself. So I understand that there's probably Baptists who are sitting there saying, yeah, but Presbyterians are telling their children lies, right? They're, they're telling their children they're Christians when they're not. Being a Christian is based on a profession of faith and, and trust in Christ, not on the family you're in or your baptism. So I understand that that, that kind of criticism goes both ways. And I, I think that's what this is, you know, I, I think we can kind of wrap up this part of the discussion is I think it's really important as we're debating this and discussing this with our brothers um, and our sisters, and even like 
sometimes you have couples where one's a Presbyterian, one's Baptist, right. and this is a conversation that comes up, is we have to understand that at one point we have to be charitable, right? So I, sh- I have to be cautious how I approach this, not just because I, I don't want to get in trouble, but because I don't want to hurt people. I don't want to hurt my family. I don't want to hurt other Christians, even if I'm not related to them by marriage or blood. I want to be charitable and gracious, and I want to present their arguments in the best light possible. So, but at the same time, when we're on the receiving end of some criticism, we also need to recognize that, you know, we need to be open to that criticism. If if something is said and it kind of offends you a little bit, it might be because the person's being offensive. But if they're really trying and you can tell they're really trying not to be offensive and you still find yourself a little bit offensive or a little bit offended, there's probably a reason for that. Right. For sure. Right. So I, I want to go back and then maybe we can kind of wrap up. I want to go back to the passage in Peter, the baptism, the first Peter 321. Yeah. All right. Let's do it. So I want to go back to this because I think this is actually a really good example. We already talked a little bit about how Acts is a good example of this, but I think this is a good example for how different traditions read texts different ways. And I want to I want to key in on one particular phrase. So verse First uh, Peter three verse twenty one says, "Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ." So you, as a Baptist, look at this and go, "Yeah, baptism is an appeal that we make." Uh, for a good conscience. I, as a Presbyterian thinker, look at this and go, wait a second, it's not me making the appeal. You know, you look at the language and baptism is the appeal. And it's not an appeal that I make, it's an appeal made through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is making the appeal on my behalf through baptism, because baptism is what unites me to his death and resurrection. So just that little twist, that little, and I don't twist this wrong word, that little variance for how we understand the relationship between those words changes how we understand the text. Um, And so that's, that's why in these conversations, it's not as simple as just repeating the same Bible verse, right? If you're in a debate online, it really does nobody any good to just copy and paste the Bible verse. That's, That's not because the Bible is not, you know, authoritative or anything like that, but it's because the Bible is interpreted. Anytime you read, you're interpreting. And so you have to understand that the person you're debating with, it's probably not the case that they've never seen that passage in the Bible before. And it's really kind of just pedantic and insulting to just quote a verse and act like that settles the debate because it doesn't usually. Right. I totally agree. In fact, maybe the best thing, the best recommendation that can come out of this episode is these kind of debates, especially about baptism, are rarely really helpful in a public venue, but especially on something like Facebook. So honestly, maybe the best thing to do is if you really want to have a deep and meaningful conversation about somebody, ask them privately for their contact details and call them up and just have a conversation yeah, about it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I wanted to end kind of talking about what unifies us in baptism. And, um, you know, as we have this discussion, uh, obviously, like the fact that we both want to root our script, our understanding in Scripture. We both want to honor God with not only our practice in terms of our own profession of faith, but also how, and again, we don't have children, but how we would handle this with our hypothetical children. Mm -hmm. Um, We want to honor God with how we treat our children. We want to honor God with how we understand them to be involved in the life and the body of the church. Um, So those are some things I think that we really share in common. What else, what do you think we, we can latch on to that gives us some unity? 
Well, I, I think like we said, we both agree that this is one of those things that's not salvific, but it is one of the things that we can build each other up on as we try to understand where we're coming from. And there's a lot I can learn from you, and I hope there's a lot you can learn from me in, in terms of those different perspectives. And one of the common thing is we're certainly recognizing here that being part of the body of Christ is absolutely imperative. And we've already talked about that elsewhere. But but the only reason people do, I think, get really fired up about this is they're they're really emphasizing that being part of God's physical body in a real sense is of paramount importance. So we're both driving toward that end at some point here. Yeah, and I think, too, um, one of the things that Baptists often get misrepresented in these kinds of discussion is that we both would affirm, although we would affirm it in different ways, we both would affirm that baptism is a means of grace. Right, exactly. That God, God actually conveys grace to us through baptism. Um, again, we would we would disagree on the exact way that that works, but even there, we wouldn't have as much of a disagreement as you might expect. Yeah. So um, I think it's it's so important as reform, you know, reform Baptists and reform Presbyterians. Um, baptism is really an important subject, and it, it it's important in and of itself, but it's important because it kind of discussing it sort of uncovers all of these other questions and things that we need to work through: hermeneutics, eschatology, ecclesiology, all of these things. But we are so much closer to each other than we think, and there are so much more big fish to fry yeah, in terms of it. Um, I've, I've often said, you know, and you can say this with any kind of theological disagreement that even when you talk about like the difference between Arminianism and Calvinism, there are still bigger theological fish to fry beyond the particulars of how God's will is effectual in salvation. That's still a huge important topic, but. There are a lot of people who deny the Trinity, and Arminians and um, Calvinists, for the most part, hold the same doctrine of the Trinity. And this is even a, a more uh, rarefied sort of thing, is that Reformed Baptists and Reformed uh, Presbyterians, we share so much. And there are so many other things in terms of um, the, the gospel that is presented uh, really only truly through a monergistic Reformed theology that we share it's so much more central for us to get that right and to preach that together with our Reformed Baptist or Reformed Presbyterian brothers that we can't let this discussion or debate get in the way of that. That's absolutely true. There's a lot that binds us together. And there are some, for instance, that you know still don't believe or struggle with justification by faith alone. So this is nothing next to something like that. Right. It just does not right. compare. And, and I would add to that, if you're going to have a discussion with somebody about this, and if you truly, again, the reason why people get fired up is because we're talking about representation, sign, symbol, acceptance, part of God's church family. So, so think about that. That's part of the, one of the reasons why we get really emotionally tied to this type of thing. So if you put that right up against the fact that you're about to have a conversation with somebody that you know holds the opposite view, if that person you believe is truly part of God's family, truly your brother or sister, then the best thing you can do is not caricaturize them is not push them to extremes, is not make light of the position. Like, you know, I don't go around like making jokes about Presbyterians, like having covenant pets and stuff like that. Like that's just making a character out of somebody is not something that you would like to have happen. But if you're actually serious about having a reasonable dialogue in a way that's uplifting and if, as, as Jesus communicates to us in the New Testament, that all of life becomes an act of worship, then this should too. And so we ought to take that seriously in in how we discuss it. Yeah. And then the last thing that I'll say is um, 
if you are in a position where you find yourself at odds with the congregation that you are a member of on this subject, like myself, um, I want to be gentle, but I also want to be firm. Just keep your mouth shut. Like, I know that that seems strange, but like in Bible study or in, um, you know, Sunday school or even in conversations after church is not the place to try to discuss this with your congregation. Now, I, there are people who are members of my church who will hear this. And um, I want to, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that this isn't going to um, cause people to question things. And that's not at all what this is. Christians all up and down the line disagree on all sorts of things. And this is just another one of them. But if you find yourself in that position, then you really should, if you can't keep your mouth shut, then you need to go somewhere else. Right. Because the, the, the peace of the church, the unity of the church, the purity in terms of doctrinal agreement um, in the, the majors is more important than whatever your pet topic has to be. And if you think your pet topic, whether it's baptism or eschatology or a particular interpretation of one verse in scripture, whatever your pet topic is, if you think that that is more important than the peace and unity of the local congregation you're a part of, first of all, you're wrong and it's a sin and you should repent. But second of all, if you can't do that, then go find somewhere that it's not an issue. Man, that's a good word. I, that's right on. I think that there is, if, if worship really is being submissive to the head, which is Jesus Christ, then sometimes the best way that we worship is by submitting, even even in this kind of, these kind of arguments and debates, that there is a great testimony in that. And I think there's yeah. also something that's very pleasing to the Lord when we do that. Because and, if we believe that he is truly superintending his will on our lives in a way that we are being fitted to a particular local congregation that is in a way that is perfect, then we must respect the fact that there will be times where we will not agree with every single detail, as you said. And sometimes the best thing we can do is submit lovingly and to to pour ourselves out in trying to be overly gracious and accommodating in listening and trying to understand ideas that, again, are not salvific, but allow us room to disagree. But if we cannot disagree, I mean, look, look at the world that we live in right now, especially with, in, in politics, which is a whole nother podcast. But look at the world in which we live on Facebook and in our classrooms and in the places where we work. People just can't, disagree, can't, can't agree. And they wear that disagreement on their sleeve with such like vehement uh, debate that when we as Christians come together to discuss these things, and end, begin and end in love, that itself is amazing evangelism. It really is. But if yeah. all we do is get online and yell at each other and, like you said, quote the same verses and just try to say over and over, no, I don't think you understand and you're dumb for thinking it, thinking it this way, then all we're doing is being like the very people that in another venue we would say that these guys are crazy. Um, yeah, so I, I really don't want to be that kind of person. So that's why I love talking about this stuff with you. Yeah, and I, for one, am happy to submit to my local church on this. Um, it, it has never, ever been a situation where I felt that I had to say something. Um, and, you know, and you and I even kind of asked whether we should even do this topic. And I, I, it's just too big of a topic for us to ignore. So um, right. we would love to get any feedback that you have. Um, you know, you can call us and leave us a voicemail, 607-444-2767 or 
607-444-BROS. That's our voicemail. Um, you can email us, uh, reformbrotherhood at gmail.com. Uh, you can hit us up on Twitter at reformbrohood, uh, or you could also uh, join our Facebook group as well, and we would love to, to chat about this with you. So, Jesse, do you have any uh, more closing words of wisdom? It seems like we've had several closing words sections now, but let's <laughs> let's wrap it up. Give, give us something good. Uh, I, you know what? Now you put me on the spot. I don't have anything good. I feel like this is like a preacher who says in conclusion like five times. That's basically what we've done. That's true. So I'm just going to end it there. Yes. It's like a loop. You can't get out of it. Yeah. It, All right. Well, we hope you'll leave us some feedback, leave us a voicemail, and we uh, we hope you're edified by this discussion. And uh, hate mail can go straight to Jesse's. <laughs> Just send it over. I'd be glad to receive it. All right. Well, we uh, we will see you next week. Peace. Uh, what if I'm fine?